Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. Welcome to Off the Shelf, the second life radio show and podcast about books and the people who love them. I'm Kigia Gerardi, and this is Simeon Beresford. Join us as we survey the literary scene in our virtual world. Welcome to Off the Shelf. Do you like dirigibles, alternate histories, Victorians, werewolves, vampires, steampunk science, or even just good tea? A lot of our listeners do. So we persuaded Gail Carragher onto the show. Welcome, Gail. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, we're very excited to have you here. Well, I've laid out all kinds of teasers in the opening, but would you tell readers what they would discover when they open one of your books? Well, essentially, my books are, are basically spoofs. I, uh, I took a look at a lot of different styles of Victorian literature, and then I decided I wanted to kind of poke fun at them. So that's my step off. And then I uh, created a steampunk world in, in which I could do that. And so they're sort of comedies of manners, spoofs of Victoriana, um, with a little bit of urban fantasy thrown in, and a whole lot of comedy. Great. Well, I'm a huge fan of urban fantasy and steampunk fiction, and I even like to read the occasional romance, so I was really thrilled to discover your first book, Soulless. What led you to combine those those genres? Well, I think I, I was pretty much just like you, which is that I was a big fan of all of those different genres. But um, to me, there was something sort of a little off about what I was looking for in each of those genres, so I really love urban fantasy but I'm, I'm not really into a contemporary setting. And so I kind of wanted my urban fantasy, but set back in time. And, and so I was hunting about for something like that. And then I, I love steampunk fiction, but I find a lot of steampunk tends to be dystopian and dark and gritty. And, and you know, while that's fine and enjoyable, I was kind of hunting for something really lighthearted. I'm a huge Douglas Adams and P.G. Woodhouse fan, so I was sort of hoping for some more comedy. And then I also, you know, I'm, I'm girly, and I like some romance in my, in my fiction. So I was hoping to find something that sort of combined all these things, and I kept looking for them, and it wasn't out there. So eventually I just decided, well, I guess I better write it. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and I thought it, it was so many different genres, all of them crammed together, just a little bit of everything I liked that no one would ever buy it because no one would ever know how to sell it. So um, I'm still to this day shocked that anybody was interested in buying the book. But. They're they're great fun to read, but one thing that one of the reasons they do sell is that you take those genres or those basic tropes and you take the books beyond the the stereotypes. How do you how did you make that decision? How did you how do you set about moving them beyond that? Well, part of that was was actually quite intentional. So I really, I did a lot of studying of uh, classic, the classics when I was an, an undergraduate. And so I really am interested in classic heroes, journeys, and archetypes, and that sort of a thing. And so I, I did look at the 
not just the genres of, of back in Victorian times, like boys' adventure fiction and um, the early beginnings of science fiction and fantasy and horror and all those sorts of things, and see what archetypes and tropes they were playing with. But I also took a look at what pops up in modern urban fantasy and steampunk and looked at the tropes that were being sort of dealt with there. And I, I borrowed a whole bunch of them and then I twisted them. So in the first book, for example, you'll find that I'm following a lot of tropes quite sort of faithfully, um, but there are just a few twists. And then as the series progresses, I, I start turning more and more of them up on my head. So I, I really enjoyed doing the unexpected. So, you know, I'll set up classic archetypes only to undermine them later on. Um, and, and part of that is because I do like to spoof. So I do like people, you know, will come to the to the book expecting a classic urban fantasy or a classic romance, and then um, I'm going to, you know, poke fun at that. And one of the ways to poke fun at something like that is to turn a trope on its head. So um, I am consciously doing it. Sometimes I'm subconsciously doing it, but most of the time I really am just playing. It's just so much fun as a writer to be able to play with those kinds of things. How much of it do you plan out ahead of time then? Are you saying, okay, um, vampires are typically X, so I'm going to make them X plus two? Yeah. <laughs> um, it depends. Some of the characters are intentionally like that. Like a, a favorite character of many people's is Lord Obama, And he is quite intentionally poking fun at kind of the modern idea of a vampire. And so vampires in the Victorian era were these dark, gritty, uh, often sexual predators coming out of something like the monk or, you know, very early Alvin uh, Pierre, you know, like they're, they're coming out of very early ideas of, of monster. And and the vampire from, from nowadays that we see in Hollywood and it has a sort of, again, it's back to being a sexual predator, but there's this sort of teen, angsty, glitterati around the idea of vampire. And so I took those concepts and just sort of times it by 100 when I was creating Lord Akaldama. I created, you know, an incredibly flaming, gay, Oscar Wilding kind of character to really poke fun at both what we're, well, the way we're treating vampires now, but also the way they were treating vampires way back when and how somebody like Oscar Wilde was sort of perceived within the Victorian society as kind of vampiric and predatory in his way, simply by virtue of his, his sexual preferences. And so, you know, creating a character like that was was definitely intentional and planned out, and his complexity and the way he changes as the series progresses is also playing with that trope, and, and that was all very intentional. But some of the other uh, things were slightly less intentional. So when I wrote the first book, it's it's a spoof on a classic Gothic romance. So I was really you know, tying it into something like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey and looking at those sorts of books in order to spoof them. And I, I didn't quite know where I was going to go with the rest of the series, mainly because I didn't know there was going to be a series. <laughs> um, so then when I found out I was going to write other books, I, I started to go out and look at other uh, literature of the time period. And so the second book is a spoof on a gothic mystery, like Castle of Toronto style. You know, I, I looked mm -hmm. at some Poe and stuff in order to poke fun when I was writing that story. And so each story is slightly different in that it follows the pattern of its of its mockery <laughs> of its genre that or subgenre. Um, so you know, I, I mean, I, there is a risk in alienating readers because you know my initial readers might have been drawn because of the romance element, which kind of dies out and is replaced by a slightly more mystery element in the second book. But I want to keep the characters alive and fun for me to write. And, and for me, part of that is toying with these old tropes. 
So um, initially very intentional, to answer your question, very intentional in some regards, but a little bit looser in others. And, and there is certainly some uh, find as I've been going along that <laughs> it's been a little bit more of a challenge as a writer. Right. Especially if you hadn't planned on taking on different genres or different versions of the genre going on. Yes, so. exactly. So I have to do pause for research, which I, you know, other kinds of research that I hadn't really intended. <laughs> but, you know, Did you discover any new authors doing the research for for those kinds of books? Um, well, I actually delved into authors that I hadn't, like that I'd only sort of glossed before. I'm, I'm fortunate in that, I, in that I've studied Gothic literature before, so I've studied this whole um, time period that sort of Victorian, early Victorian literature movement. Um, so I did have kind of a grounding, but going in with a different eye, it's very interesting sort of rereading somebody like like Poe when you're looking at him as a writer um, rather than just as an experience, you know, as a reader in, in school or, or for pleasure. So, you know, it is, it's interesting to go back and read some of these things with a different perspective, thinking, you know, what bits am I going to steal? What bits am I going to play with? What, what bits am I going to mock? Mm -hmm. So um, it's been a new experience, rereading, which is it's, it's really fun. <laughs> well, the humor definitely comes through in your novels. And in another interview, you stated that like Monty Python, I believe the series is filled with the kind of comedy that crosses cultural boundaries, farce, sarcasm, and indiscriminate irreverence. So what do you find challenging with writing humor? Oh, my goodness. It's really hard. I think everything about writing humor is difficult. Um, <laughs> that doesn't yeah, sound encouraging, <laughs> does it? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, somebody famous, I can't remember who, you know, once said that comedy is the, is the hardest thing to perform. You know, it's so much more difficult to make people laugh than it is to make them cry. And I feel that way about writing um, comedy as well. I find it extremely challenging. <laughs> um, and there's, you know, it just something can become tired really easily. So, you know, like you have, have certain characters that are very funny. They're intrinsically funny just by walking on, on stage, as it were, into a scene when you're writing it. But you have to be careful not to overuse those characters because then they become not funny because it's just too much in your face with the same thing. Um, and so, you, you know, I find myself exploring all different kinds of humor. So you sort of comedic, physical comedy humor, getting somebody drunk, for example, and, and, and injecting that into a scene, as opposed to sort of situational comedy humor, you know, somebody falls off um, uh, the side of a dirigible and ends up upside down with her under thing showing to the world, you know, shocking. And so there's, and then there's, lang you know, use of language for humor or naming somebody a funny name to make that humorous. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's quite challenging to figure out which elements should go in which scenes and also not to kind of challenge the integrity of the tension of the plot at the same time. You know, too much humor and nothing in the book will be taken seriously at all, including situations of danger. So, and you still want it to be exciting and an adventure to read. So it's quite a challenge. <laughs> What about spontaneity? Uh, the problem, I think, with writing humor is the temptation to second-guess yourself. Do you worry that you might lose the spontaneity on Rewrite 32? Yes, I do, actually. And, um, and sometimes, for me at least, spontaneity is really helped by my characters. So I do have you know, pairs of characters or sets of characters that I know if I put them into dialogue with each other, 
it's almost like the character will take off without me. They're so much invested in their own personalities, the way I've written them, that you know they can have a humorous conversation, but it's kind of being written through me. It's almost like I'm not conscious of it. And that's um, an awesome way, an awesome ability as a writer, and it doesn't happen very often <laughs> for me. But sometimes I'll put a couple characters on, on stage together, and they'll just be hilarious, and, it, and it's nothing to do with me, and it's sort of the sponta- spontaneity comes from that. But um, as to rewriting, I actually get a lot of my comedy within the rewrite. So, um, you know, like I'll write descriptive passages or descriptions of action that aren't funny at all, knowing that I can go back and fuss with it during the rewrite process and and make it funny then. So it's actually, rewriting is an opportunity for me to add more humor into my books. But then I, I really like the rewriting and the editing process. It's one of my favorites. I'm one of those authors. Uh, It's the people who don't enjoy that that never become writers. You have to, I think, (laughs) because you have to do it anyway. Uh, How how important is research when you're writing about a steampunk London with vampires and werewolves? Are anachronisms even possible? Tea is, of course, important. But the social nuances. Are you worried, for example, that your heroine, Alexia, might bid someone good afternoon as a shoe, a mere grocer. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, and I think the sort of technique to writing alternate history is to try and get as many things possible so that you're, the alternate aspects feel seamless. So you're getting as much, as much right, as much correct as you can. And and I have made mistakes, you know, I have put in a word that, you know, is an American word, because obviously I'm American, <laughs> or um, a greeting that's not quite the right greeting for the time period. And, you know, there's nothing I can do, it's in print now, I can't go back and change it, you know, and I, I live with the certain knowledge that if I make one of those mistakes, somebody out there, probably several somebody's, will send me an email telling me I've made that mistake. <laughs> Good. Um, and They're I'll, doing yes, their job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I file it away and I don't make the mistake in a future book. But um, Or sometimes I'll make an anachronistic mistake that is intentional and when somebody spots it, I get really excited and I'm like, aha, that's you know a cookie. I intentionally dropped that weight and see. It'll be explained, you know. Um, so, you know, Sometimes that's that's really what's going on. But I, I do worry, and I do spend a lot of time researching. I, I would say I spend as much time researching as I do writing. I'm lucky that I already had a passionate love for the Victorian era, so something, and for the literature of the time, so some things came pretty naturally to me. But I also, you ha- I worry about things that I know really did exist in Victorian times, that, but that people will perceive as modern. So... Sometimes, for example, I'll want to use something like a syringe, which, of course, was invented about 20 years before my books take place. But the sort of word syringe feels modern to a lot of readers. And so by using that word, I can cast people out of the time period, even though it really did exist. Yes. So Um, um, you have to be careful about that, too. They had, I I remember vaguely, <laughs> they had uh, steam-powered vibrators. So Yes. Oh, my God, the Victorians were extremely kinky. <laughs> they also were um, really into tattoos and piercings in the Victorian oh, era, yes. which, um, which people are like, really? And you're like, yeah, yeah, no, they really were. But, uh, yeah, so to sort of kind of to answer your question, yes, I think anachronisms are possible. 
but uh, and and you have to be aware of that if you're if you're writing steampunk. But you also, I mean, if you build your world as tightly and you weave it as as cohesively as you as you can, and you treat it with as much integrity as possible, then then most of the time you can keep keep people immersed in that universe. Um, but again, you know, there comes a point where I have to stop myself from researching, or I would spend all my time researching and not doing any of the writing, and, and I do have a deadline I have to hit. So there comes a point where you you also have to say to your critics, you know, hey, yes, I could have spent five days trying to figure that out, but you want the book on time, don't you? <laughs> you know? So, yes. you know, so sometimes you have to just stop yourself, especially if you're someone like me who loves the research process. And, just and say, you keep going to these conventions as well. These are your yes, I do. I like to go out and meet people. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a terribly social writer. It's, it's quite embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> One last question on, on that. Um, you, your British editions use American punctuation and spelling but how do how do the Brits feel about this? Do you get angry letters about it? You know who was most upset? Me. <laughs> I um, I fought really hard to get it uh, translated, quote unquote, into British into proper English, because I actually kind of write in a bit of a pigeon English. So when I initially write the books, I lived in England for quite a long time, and and my mom is an expat, so uh, I hear British voice in my head. And so when I initially write them, I kind of write them uh, with at least British grammar, you know, dropping the la- the that's and things like that that Americans don't do. Um, and then my American copy editor has to edit me back to Americanisms. I, I use American spelling, but um, so it's kind of a strange mix-up when I'm writing the book. So, that, so they edit me back to what's called uh, American English, and that is part of the house rule. So I, I sold in the United States to a United States publisher, and they have these house rules, and one of those is to make sure it's Americanized. Um, and then I really wanted to be translated back to British when I went when I sold to England. Um, but there just wasn't time. They wanted to bring the books out really quickly, and they just didn't have time to, to translate them. So... Uh, I'm hoping that future books, uh, I'm, I'm going to have some sort of contract clauses in there that say, you know, it really has to be in British. But surprisingly enough, I've had very few complaints from the British audience. And I don't know if that's because they're, they're not the kind to complain or if they know that that's American, you know, American is the initial language, language it was published in or if, you know, they're giving me a long piece of rope to hang myself with but um, <laughs> I've had only a couple of complaints so I actually expected more people to be mad about that because I was pretty upset but. I think the Brits will complain just not to you yes <laughs> yeah they'll complain to each other maybe that's what's going on <laughs> yeah I have of course a, a, a British family and so they all definitely complained to me they were like <laughs> why something spelled wrong like I'm sorry I tried <laughs> Connie Willis uh, caught a lot for her blackout. But that was historical details mainly that people objected to getting well. Anyway, um, in your non-writing life, you work as an archaeologist. Does that background influence your writing? Yes, I think it does. Um, in, In very strange and kind of unexpected ways. I mean, I was a hardcore academic for a very long time. And um, 
it's given me a certain set of skills which helps with writing alt history, which is that I, I, I can research pretty thoroughly and quickly when, I have, when I'm inclined to. So um, and that's certainly sort of a skill set that I took out of archaeology back to it. But it also gave me this weird way of looking at history, which is um, I describe my books as kind of alt history, and I think most steampunk is, basically. But I don't write it the way a lot of other people write alt history, which is that I don't go in and take a major moment in history and then change it. You know, like I don't take a major military battle and then say that the other side won or something like that. Instead, I, I look at history the way it actually occurred and try and re-explain what happened using a different set of evidence, which I think is kind of an archaeological approach. So in other words, I'm looking at what's been dug up and trying to come up with different explanations for why it occurred. And so, for example, I looked at the British Empire and how it expanded, and, and I went, well, what if they were able to do that because they had the help of um, werewolves in their army and vampires in their sort of strategic and in government. And what if uh, the Victorian obsession with power has to do with the fact that vampires are ruling the fashion world? Or, you know, what if you wear cravats and high collars because you're hiding neck bites? You know, those kinds of things. So, um, and that's definitely kind of an archaeological mindset, I think, to try and take the evidence as you have it and re-explain it using different ideas. So that's yeah. definitely my archaeology side. Uh, can we expect that your, all your stories will be rooted in the past? How do you feel about writing contemporary stuff or even futuristic? I like both of these things very much. Um, and I've, I've written a couple of contemporary short stories. And oh my God, I forgot how much fun and easy that is because you don't have to do any research at all. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can whip this story out in half the time. Um, so it's possible. I don't know if I would be vested in writing a whole series. Maybe you know, short stories or maybe one standalone book or something like that. But as for contemporary, I don't see myself really doing a long-running series in contemporary times. I'm just not that excited about it. But um, the future, definitely. I, I love to write far future sci-fi, for example, where I take an ancient culture that isn't very familiar to the Western mindset, like, say, the late of uh, the Wari or the early Inca or something, and reimagine them as an alien culture on a future world with future technology and that kind of thing, because I think it can give a really alien nature to a culture. And again, being an archaeologist, um, so the cultural aspects is, is very exciting and interesting to me. So I could imagine doing that, but but right now I'm really happy for being settled where I am, and uh, and I'm hoping that I get to you know write more books that are in this time period, but perhaps going to different parts of the world or different parts of the Victorian Empire. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> so do you have trouble fitting your writing in around your day job? I know hacking through jungles, living on instant noodles will take it out of me. <laughs> well, actually, um, this is kind of a ringer of a question because I recently gave up my day job for writing. So I'm Ooh. now officially a full-time writer. And... Um, for the last couple of years, I did manage to squeeze in the jungle hacking, although in my case it was climbing mountains in, in the uh, highlands of Peru. But um, that site, uh, since the major floods that happened in, in the uh, Cusco area, has kind of been uh, on, on layaway. The site's on kind of on hold. So I haven't been going back to excavate at all. And, uh, and you know, I'm finding that's fine. <laughs> I'm doing... 
so much traveling and uh, for the books and going to conventions and so much writing and so many writing projects that I don't mind putting archaeology on hold. I don't I don't miss it as much as I thought I would, and I do have the luxury of knowing that you know I can probably go back to it at any at any point in time. I still stay in touch with friends and colleagues in the field, so um, that world is still open to me, and I, I still have a hotline in case I need to know something from some ancient time period or another, I can pick up the phone and call someone. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll give you a few minutes to catch your breath and sip some tea, maybe have a Battenberg, while we listen to the promo from Miriam Rich, followed by a little music chosen today by Gabby.
A heavenly world, rebuilt from the brink of extinction. I am Day, goddess of the time when the sun is bright in the sky. A group of immortals with newfound powers. I am Night, god of the earth when it is plunged into darkness. A man in the depths of despair. I am Dawn, god of the time when the first rays of daylight break over the horizon. And a queen who must send her loved ones off to battle. I am Dusk, goddess of a time when the million sunset hues light the sky. When a new enemy endangers the peace of their world, will they be strong enough to overcome him? Or will their uncontrollable thirst I need blood. cause them to perish as those before them? Can a society of street thugs battle their demons for them? Or are they going to need the help of someone stronger? My God! <laughs> Miss me? The vampires of Night's Nights are back in the exciting new pod novel sequel, Dusk's Warriors, by Emery and Rich. You think you know everything about vampires? <laughs> Well, these ain't your average vampires. Stay back! What are you doing to me? What is that thing? He's one! A real one! No, Fang! Don't... Did you hit your head? No, I, uh... There was something wrong about that recording. You may experience trouble hearing, gurgling noises, or ringing in your ear. Has this happened to you before? Never. This is about your soul. Are you prepared to lose it? What's that smell? Oh, yeah, that's my soul burning up. <laughs> the souls of children. <laughs> Try by fire! Yeehaw! Dusk's Warriors by Emery and Rich. Available now at vamp.mevio.com. With music by Factory of Dreams. This is my domain now. Go from it and never return. Sometimes you gotta kill him twice. Your eyes penetrate me. That was The Illusion of Free Will by Alexandra Hammer with 1M Not 2. You can find out more about Alexandra's work at her website, alexandrahammer.bandcamp.com. And I'm not going to comment about Gabby and the Bandcamp URL there. And we will link to the site on our show notes. But back to talking with Gail. And let's talk more about Alexia Terabati, the main character in your series. She is one of those rare people who was born without a soul. Other than that, she seems relatively normal, unless you listen to her mother's opinion. Um, how did you condition her to stand out around all these other paranormal, greater, bigger-than-life characters? 
Well, again, that was actually something, it kind of happened, it was a matter of propinquity to a certain extent, but it was also intentional. So I am an urban fantasy reader, and one of the kind of standards of the archetype of the strong female urban fantasy heroine is that she is particularly special in some way, usually because she has an extra sort of power or ability, kind of like Buffy and um, the Vampire Slayer, and she has the sort of Slayer abilities, so she's faster and stronger and those kinds of things. Or, or uh, these heroines have a, a particular magical ability or something. So I did want to follow that archetype, and then I wanted my heroine to be special in some way. But I thought it would be fun to play with the science of the time period where they were doing a lot of research into grounding and something called the counterbalance theorem where every sort of positive has a negative, and they were beginning to understand more and more about sort of the nature of the universe so far as um, you know, atoms and that kind of thing. So I thought it would be fun to have a heroine that instead of having abilities, had her skill was in having nothing at all. So her kind of ability was to be able to cancel out other people's um, extra special talents. And, and, the, and so I sort of started thinking about that, and then right at the same time I was doing this research into Victorian science of the time period and how they were big on trying to measure the human soul. And so, you know, the interesting aspects of the Victorian era, of course, is, and also America at the time period, is that they were, uh, scientists hadn't really come up with this idea of segregating religion from scientific inquiry. And so the nature of the universe and the fact that there was a god was completely accepted by scientists. And so one of the schools of scientific thought was in trying to come up with scientific proofs for things like the soul and God and that sort of a deal. And so one of the things that they were doing was trying to measure the soul, trying to find out if it was a concrete object. And and so this idea, that I, I just decided to run with that and to make it real. And again, I, I was playing with this trope that vampires and werewolves have something less, and that's what makes them sort of supernatural, is that they have less soul or they're demons or, or they're something less than human. And so I thought I'd turn that on its head and I would make it an excess of soul that allows you to survive, to become one of these creatures. And um, going on that idea, then the opposite of the supernatural would be somebody who could cancel this excess of soul out and by doing so has, has no soul whatsoever. So it's a very sort of circuitous answer, but that's how I came up with the idea that Alexia would be soulless. And so, again, going with the sort of time period and the ideas of my universe, that then meant that she, you know, was non-religious and, you know, like, really it didn't affect her personality all that much. She still has a heart. She's just kind of, it's like, it is like missing, uh, you know, a liver or something. You know, she just has this one absence. And in her case, it sort of affects her approach to life in that she's extremely practical and extremely pragmatic, and she's not creative at all. She has no, like, real imagination or, or artistic skills. Um, and she cancels out werewolves and vampires when they touch her. So but she's a catalyst nonetheless, isn't she? Oh, she is. <laughs> she sure gets into trouble. <laughs> well, well, I mean, if you have that kind of approach to life, um, you do, she, she is kind of curious and scientifically interested in things, um, and that causes her to kind of maybe not quite have the same standards of fear as other people. You really can't, you can't really imagine the possibility of destruction that might be in her future, so she tends to kind of 
say whatever she thinks and charge into whatever situation she feels like charging into, which um, which is ill-suited to a proper Victorian woman in certain regards. <laughs> That's why we love her. <laughs> Actually, I think you've... You've already covered my next two questions. For you. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll ignore that and ask more about this lack of soul. Is she going to go to heaven? Is there anything <laughs> to go to heaven? Uh, by all assessments, yes. The, um, as far as the church is concerned, and you kind of get a hint of the sort of extremists of the church's perspective on Alexia and her type of person, which are preternaturals. Um, they are intrinsically already damned. So she has no soul to save, so she cannot be saved. So um, this, again, gives her a very odd perspective on life. Um, so far as Alexia is concerned, um, it's not she has no soul to even go to hell. She just has nothing. There will be nothing for her when she dies, and, and so far as her world is concerned, that's a fact, an accepted fact. So when she dies, she ends completely. And a sort of certain knowledge of that within the confines of a religious world will give you a very strange attitude towards life. Um, and that's part of where her kind of pragmatic and practical perspective is, is that she's like, you know, her, her moral grounding, if you want to put it that way, is actually an ethical grounding because she can have no moral grounding. She can only have ethics. And there's sort of a brief throwaway sentence in one of the in the first book, where she talks about the fact that she, when she was about eight, she kind of figured this out, that you know that she had could have no morals because she had there was no saving her, and so she actively went out as a child and then later on as a young woman um, and tried to instill in herself some kind of guidance, some sort of ethical guidance, and so for her, her kind of love of proper behavior and sort of Victorian culture and her immersion in that, because Alexia is the type of woman who will go charging into a room full of vampires, waving her parasol around, but be shocked if she shows her ankle. Um, and so that's kind of part of this, this um, persona she has built for herself, because, you know, in her world, she, she will never go to heaven. She will also never go to hell, but um, both are denied to her. So that makes her the ultimate independent female, doesn't it? She it does, have... and it was fun. It's fun to be like, oh, and that's the way, I mean, because I had built this up, and then her behavior kind of spawned as a result of this. So I didn't realize she was going to be as, she could be as independent as she could be within, because, you know, women generally not that independent in Victorian society. But because of the strange little ramifications of her state, um, her attitude is slightly different than you might expect from a spinster. <laughs> uh, um. I was going to ask about Lord Akeldama. Actually, originally we had um, two questions about Lord, about Lord Akeldama, but I refuse to say the name too often because I'm convinced I pronounced <laughs> it wrong. <laughs> um, now, as I, uh, I was, as you remarked earlier, he, he fits in well with the aesthetes and decadence of the period, people like Oscar Wilde. Um, did you draw it? inspiration from anyone in particular other than Oscar Wilde? <laughs> well, I was thinking definitely of Oscar Wilde, but I was also thinking, especially when I'm drawing on his drones and the very words, to give you a clue, of uh, sort of P.G. Woodhouse 
and uh, the sort of young men that Woodhouse talks about, and he has something called the Drones Club, yes. and uh, I'm kind of, Lord Uckleton's whole household is sort of a reflection of those Woodhouseian ideals <laughs> of ridiculousness. So that's definitely going on. But I was also thinking of um, the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is uh, much, much earlier in time, of course, but the sort of idea of the dandy spy, um, somebody who hides his intelligence behind ridiculousness. So um, that was definitely part of the inspiration for me. Um, so, um, now, you weren't always Gail Carragher. Why did the name change? Why the pen name? Um, well, I hate my real name. And that's really the biggest reason. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one. And then two, um, my, uh, my mom's middle name is Gail, and she has always loathed it. Ah. Uh. And so I figure whoever gets to get revenge on their own parents for their name. <laughs> so <laughs> I've suffered my whole life with a name I hated. And so I chose uh, a pseudonym that used um, my mom, a name that my mom hated <laughs> in order to get back at her in part. I think she's come around at this point. But um, so that was, those were part of it. And part of it was that I did think at the time that I was going to be um, still in academia. And like it or not, it's, it's very hard to be taken seriously as an academic if you write genre fiction of any kind. So um, I was also, I mean, there's, there's nothing I can do to change people's perceptions in that. So I was also kind of protecting my academic identity to a certain degree. Um, but of course, that's kind of moot now. And I think that perception is changing a little bit. But... Uh, Back when I was first starting to write the series, I, I was a little concerned about that. So that's also one of the reasons I chose a different name. And that's one of the reasons we have our names in Second Life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, most people who find out about it are, are, you know, not upset or perturbed. Or Everybody seems to be pretty sympathetic to a pen name. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've really enjoyed it because I've created a whole kind of persona and character about it. You know, the first thing I did when I knew I was going to have this alter ego, essentially, was go out and buy a second wardrobe for her. <laughs> you know, like, when I go to conventions, I get to dress way up. You know, when I'm an archaeologist, I'm running around in the field wearing jeans and a t-shirt. But when I'm, when I'm going out as Gail Carragher, you know, I wear beautiful dresses and I have a wonderful time. I really enjoy it. That's one thing I enjoy about your blog as well is you've got such wonderful fashion that you're posting on there. Oh, good. I'm excited that, yeah, I, I, I love the fashion. I love the fashion side of, of being Gail, but I also love the fashion side of steampunk. So, you know, that's really, the aesthetic is a huge draw for me to the whole world of convention going and stuff like that. I think if I didn't get to dress up, I might not want to go to as many conventions as I do. It's so much fun. I think we're very glad that you're not in Second Life because we know you'd be in here 24 hours a day. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little scared of Second Life for that very reason. I would be like having way too much fun dressing up and swanning <laughs> yes. about. And I wouldn't get any writing done. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we do in Second Life then. <laughs> Big Barbie dolls. <laughs> All right. Well, in my research about you, for the interview, I discovered that your first ambition was to write young adult literature. Mm 
So I imagine when you won the Alex Award, which is given to adult novels that appeal to a young audience, that you kind of felt a bit of satisfaction. Have you given any thought to writing for the young adult market again? Um, yes, I have. <laughs> and I can't talk about it. So, um, okay. unfortunately, <laughs> that's the response. Let us know when um, you can. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, there, well, we'll put, there's a very good chance that you'll be seeing me in that market. And um, it'll still be a very Gail Carragher thing. So it'll still be very funny and very steampunk. Um, but yes, and I'm super excited about that. I love young adults. I love writing it. It's a very fast-paced read. It's really fun for me. Um, right up until very recently, I was a professional reviewer for Horn, which is like the main book review guide for, um, yes. for children's literature, and I used to review their young adult for them. So I'm super excited to write again in young adults. And, and yeah, I, not that I would ever leave my adult market. I, I love adult as well. Now that I've found this niche that I can be kind of flippant and comedic and have fun with it. Don't have to do it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was the what was the second part of that question? Well, I well basically, just well, the ask, Alex Award. Yeah, the Alex Award. <laughs> yeah, that was like the most exciting thing to happen to me with my first book. I mean, the the first book was insane. You know, I wrote this this book and I had fun with it and I didn't think it would get published and then somebody wanted to publish it and that was a surprise and then. Honest to goodness, I was shocked by by how many people liked the book, and because I thought, oh, this is such a weird mashup. Only I find this kind of thing appealing, you know. And it turns out that that's not true. That there are a whole bunch of other people out there who really um, were looking for something silly like this. So, and you know, they would write me emails, and oh, it's it was yeah, it was an amazing first year for me as a as a writer because people really took the book to their hearts. And we're well, it's done very. It. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that the Alex Award was kind of like the pinnacle for me because it is a librarian's award as well. And my first job oh, nice. is as a librarian. And, you know, I've, I grew up, like most readers, you know, I've spent way more time than I should probably in a library. <laughs> so um, to get an award like that that was not only for YA but came from a librarian association was just like a huge deal for me. I was really, really excited. <laughs> the audiobook version of your book is also incredibly popular, isn't it? Yeah, the um, it it was a sleeper hit for Audible. Um, I have a great reader, so I think that really has something. They found a wonderful British woman. Uh, she's the same reader who does Jasper Fjord's uh, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday next. Tuesday next. Yeah, and um, she really does. Thursday. <laughs> Thursday next. Thursday right. next. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we were focusing on the last name, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of more novels, I understand that the the Parasol Protectorate is basically a five book series. Yeah. Um, are you planning to do other stories within that universe? <laughs> this is another one of those uh, rather you, know, you can't talk about it. <laughs> obvious, I can't talk about it. Answers, which basically means we all know what that means. Um, but what I can say is that I would love to, and that I hope to. And I have um, not only plans for what the, you know, in 25 years, what the world would be like, you know, kind of writing the next generation after Alexia's adventures, but also um, what the world was like before and kind of some of the changes in technology that occurred to create the universe as we know it in the Parasol Protectorate series. So, you know, for yes. example, I would love to write about uh, Alexia's father. I've essentially had to write his 
story, at least in outline form, for the for the next couple of books because you find out a lot more about him. But I still think you know he would make a great maybe one or two book series. Um, but yes, Alexia and Connell, the the Parasol Protectorate original series is ending at five. I do believe that um, a story has an ending, and so I will give that to my readers. I, I'm not a I'm not a long running beat that dead horse beat it type of writer. <laughs> Someone in our audience here wants to know if you can give a date for any of these secret projects. Is there <laughs> <laughs> well, when will it be over? When can you announce something? <laughs> but you not, I you wish I knew. My goodness. <laughs> That's the why it's secret. world, it's all hush-hush behind closed doors. And, then, and they force... I'm going to gripe for just a second. They force us authors to stay quiet about all of these things, and then somebody else leaks it on Twitter. Right, like you know, like eventually it gets out anyway. You know, like you're just like, well, why couldn't I have just announced it, guys? I mean, really. But um, soon, I hope um, all will be everybody. All will be clear. And I do have a rule, which is when it's not being recorded or written down on the internet, I will talk about things in person. So if you ever come to one of my readings and or come to a signing or something and ask me one of these questions, okay, then I will why, say because then I have plausible deniability. Right. Thank you for like me. I didn't say anything. They must have guessed. <laughs> well, I have pre-ordered your fourth book in the series, Heartless. So this is your chance to plug. When does it come out, and will it include lots of tea? <laughs> of course. Like I always, I'm sitting here drinking tea right now. Like I can't. I wrote, I put so much tea into the first book. I had to actually consciously go back and change one of the drinks to cordial instead of tea because they were just drinking so much tea. It was like a one book promotion for the consumption of tea. Um, you know, so there's Alexander always. McCall Smith has, has to add extra tea drinking scenes to his it, it, because it, his fans insist. It's a good this time period, there must be tea. There's just it's just yes. the way life is. <laughs> um, so yes, absolutely, all of the books will have tea. Anything I write will probably have. You know, if I write far future sci-fi, they will probably still be drinking tea <laughs> in it. Um, but some yeah, things heartless. are timeless. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is the name of the last book, coincidentally. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, but a uh, heartless is uh, July 1st is when it comes out, ostensibly. But uh, I don't have a gag on my books, at least I think I still don't, which, is, which means that the, the bookshelf, the bookstores can shelf the books as soon as they receive their shipment. So um, this is kind of exciting for me because what happens is I have sort of Twitter spies and fans all over the United States now, and I think I kind of have figured out where the distribution warehouse is <laughs> because... <laughs> They'll tell me when they get it, and so I can kind of watch the book appear on shelves moving across the country. And it usually, you know, it comes out July 1st, but it'll, you know, probably be in a lot of the brick and mortars by the 28th or, or so of, of June. Um, that's when it sort of seems to start showing up, sometimes a little even earlier. Did you go out to a local bookstore and see your book on the shelf the first time? Oh, yeah. I, I take I, photos. Totally unexpected. No, but, it, but it's a very funny story. If, do I have time to tell Yes, it? you do. <laughs> so a, a couple of girlfriends and I were, um, we were out and we were getting, we were, had these bubbly teas. I don't know if, if you guys have them, but they're mm -hmm. like Vietnamese drinks and they have tapioca and bits of gelatinous things in them and you, uh, they're very exciting and, and fun. 
and and we were we were sucking these down and and we're walking along and there we we man, we walked by a Borders bookstore and I was like oh can we go inside and see if my book is out on the shelf yet you know and I hadn't seen it in a, in an actual store yet um, and the girls were like sure of course whatever so we walk in and there it is and it's on the shelf and we've got our bubbly teas and we're screaming and squealing and we're getting so excited and of course like some poor clerk comes walking over to us sort of scared <laughs> what. <laughs> Can I help you, ladies? <laughs> and we're like, that's my book, that's my book. And, uh, and she says, uh, well, would you like to sign your book? And I was like, oh, oh, my God, yes, I would love to sign my book. And so she goes to the back and brings out a whole stack, and I got to sign them all. And, and we're uh, making total fools of ourselves. And I walk out of the store, and one of my friends turns to me, and she says, how did I know you were you? Like, you could have been anybody signing that book. And I and I, I turned to her and I said, "Oh, because there's a crime wave of wannabe authors <laughs> claiming to be new, brand new debut authors, and like going in and signing books is like really that's the next major crime wave." <laughs> <laughs> but no, they did not, in fact, check my ID or anything, which wouldn't have helped, obviously, because I I don't have <laughs> that's not my real name. But um, is your photo on the your funny. photos on the back though, isn't it? It is, but it is. I, I look different when I'm Gail. Like I, I, uh, I do my hair differently, and I really like. One of the reasons I think I could pull off having a sort of second identity is that I'm a total chameleon. Like people, people I've known for years, I'll just change my hairstyle and put on some makeup, and they won't recognize me. <laughs> you know, I'm one of those faces. I should have been a spy, and except that I'm a loudmouth, you know, obnoxious person, so that wouldn't work so well. But <laughs> um, anyway, so that that's my my first of the book. It was really exciting. <laughs> well, I've, uh, and did you call your parents and say, it's on the shelves? <laughs> oh, yeah. they were, yeah, no, they were all over that, man. They'd been into the <laughs> bookstores four or five times before me. They were possibly more excited than I, than I was. I mean, it's such a drawn-out process getting published, you know, so you've written the book, and it's like a year before it actually gets makes it back out onto the shelves. At least the first time around it was for me. Now I'm on an accelerated schedule, but that's pretty unusual. Um, and so, you know, by that time I was kind of tired of it, you know. <laughs> but it was still exciting to see it there. Um, but my parents are never tired. It's their baby, you know. They, they, yeah. they get to brag about it all the time. <laughs> that is so nice. And that brings us to the end of our interview. Gail, it has been such a pleasure talking with you, especially as I stole Simeon's line. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I'm used to it by now. <laughs> and I steal you. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been really fun. Okay. Thank you for being our guest, Gail. Off the Shelf is produced for Radio Real by Kegia Garardi and Simeon Beresford. Technical production is by Radio Real. You can find Radio Real on the web at radioreal.org. Music on this program includes works by artists on the Magnatune label. The music in the general introduction is John Playford's All in a Garden Green by Eileen Hadidian and Natalie Cox from their album Dolce Musica, A Contemplative Journey. The off-the-shelf theme music is 1,500 Tons by Burning Babylon from the album Stereo Mashup. And we bid you goodbye with this piece, Hagagasan 14 by Eternal Jazz Project from their album Gratis Jazz. 
You can learn more about Magnatune and their artists on their website at magnatune.com. Off the Shelf is licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>